Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew. Meet me in chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer specifically occurs in verses 9 through 13. That's what I'm going to be preaching on primarily. But for the sake of context, I'm going to back up and I'm going to read verses 5 through 15. So uh, if you are there, you can follow along. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you, forgive your, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that upon revealing yourself, upon saving your people upon sending your son. You didn't just send him to save us and leave us without a guide, but you have given us a guide in the Holy Spirit and you have given us a guide in prayer in this passage. And God, as Christ's disciples in in Luke requested that Jesus teach them to pray, we come to you and we ask the same that you would teach us to pray, that this passage that some of us have memorized, some of us have been saying since we were children, Lord, I pray that today something that is familiar would become deeply profound and practical, that you would teach us not only what this means, but that you would teach us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have three sons. Uh, they're nine, seven, and five. My five-year-old is actually sitting right there in the back. Hi, Cannon. Uh, and at some point in their lives, they have learned that my name is not Daddy, but Adam. And they will actually get the courage up to call me by my first name. And it's kind of funny. They're like, hi, Adam. And every time I, I tell him the same thing, I say, that's sir to you. No. Um, I say, I, I tell him the same time, I say, I say son, you're, you're my son. And, and, I'm, and I'm your daddy. And, and I love you. And, and everybody in the world, they'll call me Adam. Right? That's, that's my name. But you are special to me. You are my son. And you and your brothers are the only people on the planet that get to use a special name for me, you get to call me daddy. And when you call me daddy, it shows me that you know 
how special you are to me. And you can see for a little while their faces light up when they call me daddy. Here in the Lord's Prayer, we learn God's heart for us. Jesus invites us to, into this relationship that he alone has with his Father. And he says to his disciples in a groundbreaking way that was not commonplace in the time, he says, when you come to God, you get to call him Father. And when we do, it not only changes the way we think about the one we're praying to, but it reorients the way we pray. You see, prayer is not unique to Christianity. It's not unique to Christianity. The desire for and the practice of communing with the divine has taken many shapes throughout humanity's religious practices. Prayer is not unique to Christianity, but Christian prayer is unique. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, his instructions to approach God as their heavenly father set it apart from the ancient world. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven. At the center of what makes Christian prayer unique is this fatherhood of God. And the fatherhood of God then, and even in Jesus' mindset, is very different than our culture's mindset. Right? Many people today will say, well, we're all God's children because we are created by him. But that is not the case. The fatherhood of God is not a concept that applies to all humans as God's creations. It is a unique relationship that Jesus alone has with the Father that he invites us into. In other places, you see, Jesus actually referred to the Pharisees as children of their father, the devil. So in Jesus' mind, this is not a universal concept. He did not see this title being appropriately used for God the Father by those who did not trust in God the Son. And so the Lord's Prayer is a Christian prayer. It is a unique Prayer. It is a special prayer to those who follow Jesus. And this idea of God as Father might be the greatest gift that Jesus gives his people in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he, he invites them into his relationship. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Because of Jesus, we now have this special relationship with God. He is our Father in heaven. Now, many can have a difficult time with this concept, and it's partially because many dads have been critical and absent and even at times abusive. And so we have a difficult time receiving, oftentimes, this good news of the fatherhood of God because it reminds us of. of it reminds us of some of the, the, the greatest hurt and disappointments that we've experienced in our lives. We have to be careful. Because God calls himself a father not because he wants to be compared to your dad. 
God is not a father like your dad is a father. Rather, we call our dads father because they were supposed to reflect something about God. See, there is a metaphor there, but it's a metaphor that is to work one direction. Right? That our dads are supposed to be like God in reflecting God to us in his presence and his provision and his protection. So when they fail, we don't blame God. We don't judge God for our father's failures. Rather, we go to God who judges sin and heals wounds. What we need is not to eliminate fathers from our lives. What we need is a good father. We need a good heavenly father. And God is that good father. And so no matter what your relationship with your dad was like, whether pleasant or painful, our dads, all of our dads, those of us who are dads, we're broken. Fathers are broken, just like us. And some did the best that they could, but they are not perfect. And even if our dads were good dads, we run the risk of dishonoring God if we too readily compare him to our earthly fathers. Rather, God is our good father, and he sets the standard. And he is present, and he provides, and he protects, and we'll see all of that in our passage today. He is more present, he's a more generous provider, and he's a more compassionate protector. And so God uses the name Father because this title is intended to communicate intimacy. God is near to us. God is near to you. He is concerned for your needs. He is a present Father. But he is also our father in heaven. And so though he is near, though he is present, though he is concerned for you, he is also glorious and transcendent. He is holy, distinct, and completely unlike anything else in creation. And so this holy transcendence and his imminent presence of our Father in heaven is a distinctly Christian perspective. And it's the only thing that makes prayer make any sense. If your God is near to you, but is not powerful, then prayer is wishful thinking. It's a pipe dream. It's pointless. You might as well ask the person sitting next to you to do the thing you're asking God to do. If he is near, but is not transcendent, then prayer is pointless. But if your God is transcendent and powerful and yet is not near, is not involved in your life, is not concerned about your life, then prayer is talking to yourself. Don't do it. Why would you do it? He's not listening. The only thing that makes prayer make any sense at all is that he is our Father in heaven. He loves us and cares for us and is near to us, and he has the power to intervene on our behalf. In prayer, we are speaking to the one who spoke all things into existence. In prayer, we have the ear of the one who made our mouths. He is our heavenly father. And not just mine, and not just yours, not just the disciples, but he is our father. The Lord's prayer is not only a Christian prayer, it's a family prayer. He is our Father. It is significant that in the same teaching, in the verses that we read, Jesus both condemns showy prayer, praying in public for the sake of being seen, and yet in this one phrase, honors 
corporate prayer, emphasizes corporate prayer, emphasizes that when we pray to God, we not only come to him as our father, but we relate to him in the context of our relationships with one another, which are brother and sister. Even in private prayer, whether in a corporate setting or on our own, by ourselves, in our room, with the door locked, as Jesus said, we are to approach and pray individually. We are to approach God in the context of one another, having one another in mind. And so we pray our Father, and we ask him to give us our daily bread. This doesn't mean that we can't pray for our individual needs. But it does mean that the primary formula for prayer is communal and concerned about the entire body of Christ. And we will find our needs being met. We will find our individual needs being met as God provides for us corporately. We'll get into that in a little bit. So addressing God as Father in prayer is not just a kind salutation. It reorients everything about the way we approach God in prayer. And it reorients the way we think about our relationships with one another. It prioritizes God as the chief purpose for prayer and unites us all who follow him as members of the same body. And the rest of the Lord's Prayer follows from this. The Lord's Prayer is this address to God the Father, and it's followed by six petitions, six requests. And these six requests are divided into two categories. I heard one pastor and theologian say that the Lord's Prayer uh, interestingly follows what Jesus said were the greatest two commandments, that the first three requests are about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the last three requests are about loving your neighbor as yourself. The first three are God-centered prayers. And the last three are communal and God-dependent prayers. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about God-centered prayer. True prayer is always God-centered. It's primarily concerned with God and his purposes in the world. And the first petition reflects this. Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. Now, for the longest time, I thought this was praise. I thought Jesus was teaching us to praise God for being hallowed, whatever on earth being hallowed means. The only time we ever use that word is on Halloween, and we just don't have the context for it. But its root comes from the same root for holy, right? God, and you're holy, but Jesus isn't praising God. He's actually making a request. Jesus is actually asking God to do something. God, would you make your name to be regarded as holy? Now, this raises an interesting question. Does God need us to make him holy? Absolutely not. Not at all. But we're praying that he would be treated as holy. But why just his name? Why not all of him? Right? Why does his name need to be regarded as holy, but not the rest of him? Well, think about someone who's charged with a crime that they didn't commit. Um, they might have this need. They might say, I, I need to clear my name. Right? My reputation is at stake, and I need to clear my name. So when we are praying for God's name to be regarded as holy, we are praying for God's reputation to be revered and honored and regarded as holy. 
Jesus apparently is saying that God's reputation has fallen on hard times. And he doesn't say how, but we can make some observations from this text and from the New Testament. The religious leaders, who Jesus calls hypocrites earlier in this passage, are using God for their own glory. They're not treating him with the proper reverence. They're not serving him, but they are using him to serve themselves. They are stepping on God to get what they actually want. But true prayer is about intimacy with God. He is the one that we want. There's a passage in Scripture that is taken out of context all the time. People, you'll hear people say that God, does, God gives his people the desires of their hearts. Yes, that's true, but the line right before that is, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. He'll give you himself. When you delight in him, and he gives you himself, he gives you your desires. He gives you the one that you want. And so prayer is ultimately about seeking God. It's about intimacy with a God. It's about knowing God. If the reason you follow Jesus, or if the reason that you pray is so that he will bless your life and your plans, then it's not actually Jesus that you're following. It's, it's, your, it's yourself. It's your own plans and desires. If you seek Jesus because he himself is your greatest desire, then you will receive him and with him every spiritual blessing, as scripture promises. So we must pray for God's name to be hallowed in our lives, our minds, our hearts, our churches, our city, our communities. But in Jesus' day, they were also under foreign occupation by the Romans, And God's reputation was not only at stake within his community of Jewish people, but his reputation was at stake by the the oppressive rulers. They had no intention on honoring God. And so we can certainly identify with this today. In Los Angeles today, it is acceptable to believe in just about anything. I was reading an, an article where someone was claiming to be a witch, and this person was being praised. You call yourself a witch in Los Angeles, and people are intrigued. They're curious. That's so exciting. You tell someone that you follow Jesus, and they'll get the torches and pitchforks. Jesus is an offense to this city. His reputation has fallen on hard times. God's reputation has fallen on hard times. We have need to pray for God's name to be regarded as holy, for God to be treated as God. It's what we're asking when we ask for his name to be hallowed. British preacher and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said that praying for God's name to be hallowed should have priority in our prayers even over the salvation of the lost. The holiness of God should not only shape our prayers, but it should shape our hearts as we spend time with the one who is holy, holy, holy. As Jesus touched the leper and was not made unclean by him, but made the leper clean by his holy presence, when we approach the holiness of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are changed. We are made holy. So how does God's name, his reputation, become hallowed? Ultimately, all of creation will be forced to reckon with God's holiness when his kingdom comes. And this is the next request. Jesus prays, your kingdom come. 
God's kingdom is a profound theme throughout the Bible. Think of God's kingdom as God's rule over God's people in God's place. And we get the pattern for this in the Garden of Eden. God is king. He has created a people that he is ruling over who are subject to him, who who love him and are following him. And he is doing that in the garden. The dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man are in the same place. Eden is a picture, it's a pattern for the kingdom of God. But after humanity sinned, they were banished from God's presence and banished from the garden and sent into a world of sin and corruption. And the entire storyline of the Bible is God's story, God's endeavors to reunite his people with himself. It's about his kingdom coming together again for God's rule to be over God's people in God's place once again. And ultimately we see this in Jesus, our king, who made this earth his dwelling place. And he brought the presence of God to us in himself. And those who trust in Jesus as Lord have been united to him and we await his return when he will sit on his throne and establish justice and equity in all the earth. This is what we ask for when we pray for God's kingdom to come. We are praying like John at the end of the book of Revelation. We're saying, come Lord Jesus. The kingdom will come when the king returns. When Jesus is sitting on the throne. The entire storyline of the Bible is longing for the kingdom of God to come. And so in this sense, praying for God's kingdom to come is an eschatological prayer. It's praying for the end. It is looking forward to the day when the age of sin and death in this world will pass away and heaven will come to earth. But praying for God's kingdom to come is also a prayer for this world here and now. It is a prayer for the power and the presence of the king to enter into the lives of ourselves and those around us. When Jesus touched the leper and was healed, that was the kingdom of God coming into that person's life. When Jesus spoke to the paralytic and said his sins were forgiven, that was the kingdom of God breaking in and, 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 and bringing the kingdom to bear on that person's heart. When Peter told the beggar to rise and walk, that was the kingdom of God breaking through a window into this world and setting things right. When justice is upheld and righteousness and equity is established, that is kingdom work. When the poor are fed and sheltered and the sick are cared for and healed, and, and it's a, it's a glimpse of the kingdom when the gospel is shared to people who are far from Jesus. It is the kingdom breaking into the world. When Jesus is present in the power of the Spirit, it's a glimpse into the kingdom. When we gather together on Sundays and we cry out to God with one accord and one mind and one spirit, the kingdom breaks forth into the world, into this room. In Christ, the kingdom has come but it's not here fully. We see glimpses of it, but there is more opportunity to see the kingdom break into our own lives one day when no aspect of our heart will be kept hidden from him. And he has full access to to everything in our lives. When every relationship is based upon kingdom principles, is based upon the forgiveness and the reconciling work of Jesus. There is work to be done. But we cannot begin to think for a moment, and this happens in the church all the time, 
we cannot begin to think for a moment that we bring the kingdom. You do not bring the kingdom. We can live in light of the kingdom. We can see glimpses of the kingdom. But we seek the kingdom. Jesus brings the kingdom. We do not usher in the kingdom of God. We see glimpses of it in our lives. And wherever God is king, we see a glimpse of the kingdom. And wherever God is king, his will is executed perfectly. Only when he is truly the king of our hearts can we make this next request with a clear conscience. It's only when he is truly king can we ask for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is praying for absolute and complete loyal obedience to God. And it means that sometimes God's will may, may be in direct conflict with our will. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you're probably familiar with this, where you want something that is not what God wants. It doesn't matter how much you try to pursue that thing. If God is the king of your heart, his will will be done. When we pray this prayer, we need to be open to hearing from God the areas where we're being disobedient and repent. We need to be open to receiving difficult direction from God and following him no matter what the cost. I was having a conversation with my son a while back. My oldest son is, is nine and uh, I, I said, Asher, if I have a toy, it's my toy. It's my toy. I can do whatever I want with that toy. It's mine. But if I give you that toy, and so now it's your toy, what does that mean? He said, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, yeah. I said, Asher, right now your life belongs to you. You can do whatever you want with your life. But Jesus asks us to give our lives to him. What does that mean? And he said, means he can ask me to do anything. I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, that's scary. I said, why? He said, because I don't know what he's going to ask me to do. We have no idea what God is going to ask us to do. And for some of us, that can be terrifying. But we do know what he was willing to give to purchase our lives. He gave his son and if he's willing and good to give us his everything, we can trust him with our lives. This, this, this wrestling with our will and God's will and, and, and being as serious as we possibly can about it not making any, any apologies or assumptions, but when you come to Jesus, you are giving him the right to do with your life whatever he pleases. And that's terrifying, unless he's good. Unless he's good, and he is, and we can trust him. So he teaches us to pray In the prayer, it aligns our will with his. Thanks, Lo.
our hearts are shaped by it. When we pray, your, your will be done, we're fully aware of how we don't want his will to be done. Sometimes we want our own will to be done. And it gives him the opportunity to shape our hearts. These first three God-centered petitions serve not only as requests for God to act in the world, but they also serve to align our hearts to God's and bring us into trust and dependence on him. Prayer is, is, is God-centered. Prayer is always God-centered. Prayer never stops being God-centered. The Lord's Prayer shifts from these three prayers to God-dependent prayers, but we need to be sure that these God-dependent prayers never stop being God-centered. They continue to be God-centered. But let's talk about this shift that Jesus makes it's, it, it's a shift in the passage that's obvious. It's all your name, your kingdom, your will. And at this point, it makes a shift, and it talks about us and our and we. And it makes a shift in, in the prayer, and it's all about how we are dependent upon God. And so after spending some time in prayer focusing on the holiness of God, his glory, his kingdom, his will being done, we realize that our needs are few and simple. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now it's hard to read this and not think about Israel's wanderings in the wilderness after God called Moses to deliver his people from Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness and God caused manna to come from heaven and to feed and sustain the people for 40 years. God literally gave his people in the wilderness their daily bread. And so Jesus teaches us to pray and ask for a God, this God who, who has always provided for his people, who knows his people's needs, who sees his people and desires to, to provide for his people. He says, go to that God who historically has always taken care of his people, who wants to take care of his people, will continue to take care of his people, and ask for him to provide because he will. He will provide. We can have confidence that God will provide for his people. But we can't forget the communal nature of this prayer. Remember, we are praying to our Father, and we are asking him to give us our daily bread. This means that the Christian community, the Christian community, has everything it needs for the community to survive. Think of it like a family, right? If a kid is hungry... And he goes to his parents and says, I'm hungry. And mom gets down and says, well, I'm going to pray that God will provide for you. And then never feeds the kid. That would be totally inappropriate. The church is a family. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. And so this room is full of both needs and resources. Your community is full of needs and resources. Some of you have needs and some of you have the means. For the sake of your heavenly father's reputation in this city, would you feed one another? Would you love one another? Would you be generous with one another? God has given the family bread. It is not the church institution. It is not collective church's 501c3 responsibility to be providing for all of the people. It is your collective responsibility. 
to care for one another, to feed one another, to provide for one another, to give gas money when gas money is due, to pay rent, to pay bills when someone is going to get evicted. It is your responsibility to care for one another because God has provided daily bread, not just physical resources, but spiritual and emotional. Every resource that we need is not just food, it's shelter and clothing and everything. God has provided this community and will continue to provide this community with everything this community needs. And so God's provision to you might really be God's provision through you into the life of somebody else. As God has been generous with us, we too need to be generous with our brothers and sisters. It is an offense for one child in a family to be impoverished while the other lives in luxury and shows no concern. This is food, this is clothing, shelter, relationship. God has been generous with us. We must be generous with one another. God provides for our physical needs. We provide for one another's physical needs. But God also provides for our spiritual needs. And in this text, most specifically, forgiveness. Jesus prays and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. After praying for the physical essentials in life, Jesus' focus in the Lord's Prayer turns to our relational needs, our relationship with God. And confession of sin is an incredibly important aspect of Christian prayer. We confess our sins to God. And forgiving others is a crucial aspect of our lives as believers, as brothers and sisters. We not only receive forgiveness, but we extend forgiveness. Um, my, my father was uh, passed away more than 12 years ago from cancer. Shortly after he was diagnosed with cancer, um, he and my mom uh, got saved on the exact same day, uh, which was just awesome. Um, and I, I've, I was kind of skeptical. I had this, you know, like, maybe a skeptical of like a deathbed conversion, whatever it was. But there was one day I was talking to my dad. And um, my dad had been at the center of a family feud for like five years. I'd heard him say some pretty terrible things about his cousin. Um, and, and then my dad meets Jesus. And I'm talking to him, you know, a couple months after that. And we're talking about prayer. And and he tells me, he says, he says uh, you know, I, I pray all the time. Like, I'm so thankful that I can pray. I've even started praying uh, for Diane, who's his cousin. And I think he could see my jaw on the floor. Because some of the most hateful things I've ever heard anyone say about anybody I heard from my father saying about this person. And he looks at me and he says, well, after learning about all that Jesus has done to love and forgive me, I figured the least I could do is forgive her and pray for her. And I said, well, Dad, I mean, that's great. Scripture says that if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. And he, he looks at me and he goes, it says that? And I was like, Dad, you went to 12 years of Catholic school. This is literally the Our Father. Like, this is the, that's the, the line immediately after the thing that you've memorized and said all of your life. And he said, so help me, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know it said that. And from that moment on, I never was skeptical of my dad's conversion. Because that was absolute proof positive evidence that the Spirit was telling him to do something that no one else had told him to do. That Jesus has forgiven you, therefore forgive one another. When we refuse to forgive others, we're denying the power of the very thing that makes our forgiveness possible. We're denying the cross. 
The cross is what makes our forgiveness possible. There is no forgiveness apart from the cross. The words here of Jesus are so definitive that it seems that we could say that the truest test as to whether or not someone has actually received forgiveness from God is their willingness to forgive those who sin against them. Because if we deny the power of the cross for others, then we deny it for ourselves as well. Either the cross has power to save or it doesn't. If that person that has offended you, if their sin is so great that the cross is not enough, then your sin against God pales in comparison. If the crimes committed against you are too great for the cross, then your sins against God are far too great for the cross. But that's not true cross is our means of salvation, our forgiveness. All sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven by God because of the cross. Your sin and the sin of the person sitting next to you and the sin of the person sitting across the room because you sat on the other side of the room because you saw them walk in. The cross is enough to forgive ours and everyone's sin. The cross not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to one another. But many abuse God's willingness to forgive. Knowing that he forgives, there's often no effort to abstain from the evil in our lives. But this abuses God's grace and it drags his holy name, his holy reputation through the mud. We've already prayed for that not to happen. So we cannot abuse grace. And so Jesus teaches us to pray this final request. As he forgives our sin, we ask him to lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. This request is all about recognizing our need for God to protect us and keep us from sin and temptation. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But while God does not tempt us to sin, he will allow us to experience moments in our lives when our character and, and our, our faithfulness is put to the test so that we can grow and be strengthened and he can mature us and glorify himself in us. And while we know that these situations will occasionally come up, I want to draw our attention to another passage, 1 Corinthians 10.13. So the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will always give us a way out. God will always give us the means to be delivered from sin and temptation. There is no checkmate in temptation that we ourselves do not put ourselves in. And ultimately, Jesus provides this deliverance from evil when he refused to back down in the face of the greatest evil, when he refused to back down in the face of the greatest temptation he had ever experienced, shortly before being executed, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And he didn't want to suffer the shame and the pain of the cross. But he reflected God's perfect, holy character and he demonstrates his kingdom rule in this world, not by sitting on a throne and executing judgment, but by being nailed to a cross and executed as the king of the Jews. And though he cried out to his father to deliver him three times, he said, let this cup pass before me. Yet three times he also prayed, not my will, but your will be done. 
And in Jesus' life, it was the will of God for the evil one to do his worst. And in doing so, Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death by dying and rising again. And everyone who trusts in him as Lord is given the same victory through faith. And so whether we wrestle with temptation, yet we will not be imprisoned by it, Jesus has delivered us from evil. See, Jesus' God-centered and God-dependent life was fueled by his God-centered and God-dependent prayer life. And he has invited us into this prayer. He's invited us into his prayer. It is the Lord's prayer. Many of us have this memorized from whether it was, it was kids' ministry, Sunday school. I remember sitting at the kitchen table as a kid at, in, going through my Catholic catechism and, 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 and having to memorize the Lord's Prayer in the King James English and wondering what kind of art God was doing in heaven. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven. Uh, like, what is this? Is he drawing? We have this memorized, but for so many of us, it's become this dead religious ritual that we recite, and it doesn't give us any life anymore. But Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. This Lord's Prayer can be prayed verbatim, and we can make the words our own, and we can just slowly meditate on each word and, and pray this prayer, and God hears it. And there's other times when we can use this prayer as a guide and every category explodes into personal application each point along and God hears it. And certainly not all of our prayers need to take this form. There are other prayers in the New Testament that don't take this form. But if we are neglecting to approach God our Father through this prayer that the Lord has given us, our discipleship, our relationship with Jesus, our fellowship with him by the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit is missing something. So Jesus invites us into this God-centered, God-dependent prayer so that we too can live God-centered and God-dependent lives. This Lord's Prayer will be life-giving to anyone who incorporates it into their own plea to God. And as we approach him this way and, 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 and pray for his His kingdom to come, to pray for his reputation to be regarded as holy, to pray for his will to be done and ask for our provision and receive it gratefully. When we seek his kingdom and faithfully do his will on earth as it is done in heaven, we will see God glorified and we will see an intimacy with the Lord that we never imagined through this prayer that he's given us. So let's respond to that invitation today. The words are going to be up on the screen in the ESV because some of us have it memorized in the King James or New International Version. I don't know if you guys do this as a church often. Honestly, I don't really care, but we're going to say this together. So the words are up on the screen. I'm just going to close us. We're going to all say this together and finish this prayer together, and then we'll close with that. Ready? Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, I'm oh, sorry, I'm messing this thing up, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Many of you are familiar with another ending, right? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a lot of controversy uh, about that, but that's totally a good and appropriate thing to pray. It's got its history and its roots in, uh, it's either uh, first or second chronicles, I can't remember. Uh, if that's a part of your prayer life, I just want to encourage you in that. Don't let anyone feel you, make you feel ashamed for that because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.